and welcome to episode 65 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in this episode, it is the long-awaited, by me if oh, nobody hi. else, Cars vs. Bikes episode. <laughs> and I'll tell you why we've, I've managed to wangle that in in a second. Uh, and in the second half, we'll be comparing Hans and Revels by Jessica Mitford, more on that pronunciation later, and Tory Heaven by Margaret Tulesky. Uh, quite different books, but both political. Um, but first... Well, we are back. We were back <laughs> last a few days ago when we recorded an episode that, as soon as we finished, I discovered had not recorded. So, <laughs> nothing daunted. We're going to carry on. Yeah. <laughs> but we're not going to do the moving house versus uh, ancestral piles section. Which that we was did. a wonderful discussion. It was. Like Maybe that. we'll revisit it one day. Yeah. Um, but we couldn't, couldn't face doing that again immediately, which is how I've managed to persuade Rachel, <laughs> slash given her no choice in the matter, <laughs> that, that we should do Cars versus Bicycles. But I'm why? So <laughs> and why did we suggest Moving House, Rachel? What have you been up to? Um, so, funnily enough, I've moved house. Um, I'm finally in my new flat, which I feel like I've been talking about for months. Um, <laughs> I did buy this flat nine months ago. It's like having a baby. Is it nine um, months? My goodness. Yeah, and it's, it needed a lot of work doing. Um, there was also some problems along the way, as there always are. Um, but I'm in, and I now live in a very nice part of London, in um, Zone 1, which for people who know London, that's in the middle, which is great. Um, and I can walk to work, and it's my own place because it's mine. I bought it. And how are your books? I've got all my books here. I've got enough space for my books. I've got proper bookshelves built for them. Um, so I will do some photos on the blog at some point so you can see my new pad. And um, indeed, I have visited it. It is very lovely. And when I was there, uh, <laughs> the piano was being carried up the stairs the entire yeah. time that I was there. But it is there. It's in situ. It's yeah. amongst the books. It's lovely. And it, I can still play it, but it's great. <laughs> there was a point where I was worried that was never going to happen. But... <laughs> have I mean, you met any of the neighbours yet? Do you know what I did? I met one of my neighbours on Sunday, actually. He was very, very friendly and gave me some recycling bags, which was very kind because I didn't have any. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I assume not just because you've been scattering the hallways with your, your refuse. <laughs> no, because we had a very British discussion about the bins and when the bins go out. Um, and yeah. he was letting me know about that. And then, as a tip, I don't understand why this is, but apparently you can get your recycling bags from the library. Can you? Yeah. How exciting. Okay, well, I would never have thought that's where I would get my, my recycling bags from, but now I know, so there you are. I suppose it is the, co- the council that runs both of those things, yeah. so, yeah. Um, there yeah. is a library in the village next to mine, but it's only open about every other Wednesday for half an hour, as far as I can <laughs> tell, but at some point I should find it and go to it. Yes, you should. Now, I thought, Rachel, mm. since we have already heard each other talk about the books that we've read and enjoyed, <laughs> let's see how well we can remember what we told the other one. In the recording oh, yeah. that never was. <laughs> well, I know we're both reading the same book at the moment. That's true. Um, we found yes. that out last time. Which, you know, completely coincidentally, actually, we're both reading a book called Little by Edward Carey, which is a wonderful illustrated book that's illustrated by the author as well, um, about the life of Mary Tussaud, who started the Waxworks. And it's absolutely charming and wonderful. And Simon's got more experience of the author than I have, because I've not read anything of his before. But he's got a really wonderful way of writing, and he writes about quirky and curious people, um, and in a very kind of imaginative yet still realistic way. Um, so 
Yes, he's got a wonderful sort of fantastical imagination, even when it's tethered to to reality. In this case, who know? I'm not sure how how much reality there is because I don't know anything about Mary Tussaud, but um, but certainly very enjoyable. And as you say, I'm a big fan of his previous novels, Alva and Erva, and Observatory Mansions, mm. um, which is also about moving house, in fact, or people yeah. refusing to move house. There you go. Should have mentioned that same. And yeah. I remember your recommendation that you made in the recording that was not <laughs> for um, <laughs> Larchfield. I can't remember who wrote yeah. it. Who wrote Polly it? Clark. Thank you. It sounds wonderful. And in fact, um, I'm slightly cheating because I wrote it down on a bit of paper that is still <laughs> in front of me as I record now. But um, that was about somebody who finds a message in a bottle, which turned out to be from W.H. Auden, and she manages to go and find him. Is that right? It is. Yeah, and it's set in the modern day, so you've got one chapter in the voice of W.H. Auden. Um, it's about the time when he was a teacher in a school um, just outside of Glasgow in a seaside town. Um, and it's true, you know, he was. Um, and then, so you have a chapter in his voice about his experiences there, and then you have the chapter in the voice of the, the modern day person whose name I can't remember. I feel like it's Helen, but I think I'm wrong. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, and there's, I know her daughter's name, which is B, but I don't know her name. And she's just moved to the town. She's a poet as well. And she's just had a baby and she's got postnatal depression. And she kind of makes a connection with W.H. Jordan over time. And it's very, um, it's not the kind of book I would ordinarily have thought that I would enjoy. But as I was explaining to Simon in our um, unrecorded <laughs> recording, um, it was recommended to me while I was in Scotland. I've just been on half term for, with school and I went to Scotland for a week. Aberdeenshire, which was marvellous, highly recommended beautiful autumnal colours yeah. very 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 lucky with the weather I have to say because we didn't get tea we only got a little bit of snow on the last weekend um, and I went to a wonderful independent bookshop the best independent bookshop I've ever been to in a little town in the middle of the Cairngorms National Park called Grand Town on Spey and the, sh- the shop I didn't mention the name of the shop last time I oh, didn't, didn't you oh, okay, no I shall this time it's called The Bookmark and it's oh. in the street. It's absolutely tiny, but ram-packed with books of all different types. That like anything that you like, you would find something in it. They even had the Stephanie books. Um, and the owner was so lovely. And once she found out I was an English teacher, she said, oh, you must read this book. We've just done it for our book club. It's about W.H. Auden, blah, blah. I think that you'd love it. And, you know, she was absolutely right. I devoured it in two days. So there you are. And I love that because so much of like literary happenings and culture is in London and it's, you know, you really have to do, have to make your own attempts to create literary communities um, outside of that sort of milieu, particularly, you know, Aberdeenshire is a very long way from London. So yes, it is. Um, even, you know, by British terms and even objectively, I think it's a long way from London. It is a long way. <laughs> so yeah, well done her. What's her name? Do you remember her name? Do you know what? She didn't tell me her name. Do you know what? I think from the website, actually, I think her name might be Marjorie. Well done, Marjorie, for Mm. fostering a literary community and for being such a wonderful bookshop. Yeah, and if anybody who's listening knows her or is from Grant Towns Bay, please do pass on um, that we have mentioned her, because I would love, and if you're in the area, you simply must go. I spend a lot of my time planning holidays with my brother by just finding bookshops I want to go to and then trying to sell the holidays to him by some other means. <laughs> so, well, this is, well, this, uh, I think there'd be plenty for both of you to do in Aberdeenshire. Yeah, he does like a castle. Well, there you are. There's yeah. plenty of them. Most per square mile, I just saw in your in, blog. Yeah, indeed. 55. That's a one, lot of castles. One for each clan. Though most of them are ruins, I have to say. Fair. 
Yeah. Well, I will be going to see Dunluce Castle this time next week, which oh. is um, on the um, near near Giant's Causeway in in Northern Ireland. I'm very jealous of that because I've always wanted to go there and have never bothered to, even though it's really not that far away. It's not that far away. It's a very short flight. Um, and it's a, I have been to the castle before, actually. Uh, it was a slightly ill-fated trip in that I went with my friend Mel, who was recovering from being in a car accident and was w- only just you know walking properly again after being in a wheelchair for a while. And I navigated us on this long walk to <laughs> turned out to be a different castle that was no longer there just a stone saying that a castle used to be there <laughs> and the next day we went to Dunluce Castle they both began with D I can't remember Dun Caverick or something was the other one which it's very confusing it's very confusing and I can't be expected to read a map it's beyond no. my can <laughs> so what books what other books did I mention Rachel oh, I'm struggling here time, to be honest with you I mean it's not that I wasn't listening so I was but this was like two days ago it was two days ago and I've been back at school um, hang on, no, let me think. Give me a clue. It's one about translation. Yeah, I mean, I know what you mean, but yeah. I can't remember any specific. <laughs> well, the title... It was about French. It was about French. It was. It was called this... And about an essay to do with... No, hang on, I It's do coming know. together. It's coming, it's coming. I want to say Roland Barthes? Yes, yes. Oh, yes. Okay, well really. So, it's This Little Art by Kate Briggs, which is in the Fitzcarrado um, publishing house. If you don't know, it's a book, book-length essay about translation. She, as, as Rachel says, translated some Roland Bart, and it's sort of about that experience, but also about other translation um, discussions that have happened over time and the philosophy of translation and all sorts. It's really engaging. And it reads, the back says it's got the momentum of a novel, and I was very sceptical as I went in, thinking mm-hmm. what sort of essay has the momentum of a novel. But it does. It's, yeah, I really head yeah. through it. Um, and it's one, I, I haven't come across, I think it's Fitzcarraldo is the name of the publisher, and I hadn't read anything by them before, though I had coveted some other things before. They're these very chic, plain books that look like you might have them on your shelf in a, in a Parisian flat in the 1940s. Oh, right. I've never heard of them. I have to Google. Yeah, they... I have seen them in a few independent bookshops, um, and, yeah, I think they're a fairly small publisher, but they... Um, yeah, I found them, in fact, in Libraria in... You, you told me where it was last time, because I can't remember. Oh, yeah, in Shoreditch. Shoreditch, that's it, off Brick Lane. Um, yeah. Which is a, a very nice, very well curated uh, independent bookshop. If you don't mind me using the word curated in that <laughs> in that context, I know some people don't like the word curated being tossed around lightly, but but I do not toss around lightly. I think they did a very good job in selecting their books. Wow! And I recall that you have finished Vanity Fair. Yay! Yay! I mean, it took me a lot, awfully long time. And actually, last night I just finished watching the TV series, and I had to watch about five episodes back to back. Um, because it was the last day that it was available on ITV Play. Oh, wow, okay. Um, luckily, I had a huge pile of marking to do, so I sat Which you gave your full watching. attention. Yeah, like, great, <laughs> A-star. Um, definitely didn't do that. Um, and I loved the um, the TV adaptation. I thought it really captured the world of the novel and the spirit of the novel, and I loved how they used modern music in it. Just, I mean, I just thought it was fantastic. Really lovely adaptation. Um, but yes, Vanity Fair, wonderful characters, very funny. But as with all Victorian novels of that period, the mid-Victorian period could have done with a third of it and <laughs> half of the characters not being in it. Um, but, you know, worth the slog. In the <laughs> That's a quote they'll be putting on the new edition from Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> and I will one day finish it, even though I have been reading it on and off for about three years. But You'll get there. I'll get there. I'll get there. I don't remember anything that's happened to this point, but I'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> Becky threw a Bible out the window, right? 
dictionary. Dictionary. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of um some Pinero play where they burn a Bible. What's that? I don't remember. I have no idea. There's just so much going on in my head, Rachel. Oh. You see, so many literary illusions. <laughs> Can't be expected to sort them all out into order. <laughs> well, since we last spoke, I have started listening to another audiobook, uh, which oh. I, can't, I can't remember if we've already mentioned. Um, I Am, I Am, I Am by Maggie O'Farrell. No, but I've heard about it. I read a review yeah. last year when it came out. It's not new, is it? Not not super new, no. It's last year or the year before or something like that. Um, it's her autobiography. Well, sort of. It's a sort of memoir through her, I forget how many, so let's say nine uh, times that she almost died. Yes. Which is a very interesting way to sort of frame a memoir. And I... I'm only one chapter in, in my audiobook, and I found the first one really interesting, which was all about escaping a sort of, um, a, a man who was raping and murdering women hiking. Just, you know, it's very tense, obviously, and very sad for the people who did not escape. Um, yes. but, you know, I tense and, and listenable. I feel like when she gets to the ones which are more gory, I may struggle to, to, Listen in my car as I drive to work. <laughs> I have to pull over and <laughs> change to but, something more yeah. pleasurable. But I've only read one of her novels, The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox, but I do have a lot on my shelves waiting to be I've read. never, I think my mum's read a couple of them, but I don't, they don't strike me as being my cup of tea that I could be wrong. I think you'd like, the one I've read I thought was really good. It's about somebody who was sectioned or whatever the, the term was for sectioned in the, 30s or 40s when she whenever she was and she comes out as an as a much older woman and oh. have a deal with that but it's yeah she, she writes well okay i enjoy her have you started anything since since sunday no i can't say i have i've just, I've just just been so busy i don't think that i did last night but i think well, i was i was watching my unfair and lots of, lot of yeah. yeah no that's what i did <laughs> yeah okay oh, right so you've had a bit of time now, Rachel, to think about... I can't think of any, so you're carrying this entire <laughs> I take no responsibility for this whatsoever. You've had I years to think about it. it. Years. Can't it. You, <laughs> you did. did not listen. So you go ahead and start us off with your comprehensive list of comparative <laughs> titles. Which to choose, my goodness. And I'll see what I can contribute, if, if anything. I'm sure you can think of at least one book with the car in. I think most books have a car in it somewhere. <laughs> okay. Well, I will start. Um, and we, a book we've covered before on the podcast, actually, uh, The Love Child, Edith Olivier, has oh, some yeah. very interesting sections. And that's why it's published in 1927. Um, and cars, obviously, relatively new in, in being things that people can get hold of. And um, like the premise of the novel is is a spinster accidentally conjures her childhood best friend into life. Um, and then later in the book, there's sort of a tussle as as the child is growing older and is starting to maybe fall in love with a local local man, local young man who owns a car. And they've yes, yeah, so they've spent their um, time together pretending to go on drives, but then this love child discovers that actually you can go on real drives, and it's all about the car is you know the imagination made real and the competing worlds of imagination and reality that was fun yes <laughs> is that how exactly going to go well, do you think i've actually got a couple of examples i knew it i knew it um if they're coming to me um <laughs> i think what's really interesting about if you think about cars versus bikes is obviously the danger inherent in in cars and the dramatic impact of particularly cars driving fast the potential mm-hmm. um and i think three titles actually where this is relevant so the um 
the closing chapters of, of To the North by Elizabeth Bowen are amazing in that there is um, a girl and her kind of lover who have quite a stormy relationship and they're driving um, back from holiday and, and he's driving quite recklessly and she's uncomfortable and you know that their their ending is not going to to go well and it's incredibly tense and frightening to read because um, you just she's trapped in this confined space and she can't mm-hmm. get out she's powerless and that sense of a car being used as a weapon is really powerful um, and really drives the plot forward and creates such an amazing amount of tension. I mean, I, when I finished that book, I just had to lie down for like five minutes. <laughs> I, I was so overwhelmed. And then um, similarly to that, I mean, I think probably one of the most recognisable scenes with a car and, and tragedy is in The Great Gatsby when um, uh, Tom drives down um he's i can't remember her name the girl that he's having an affair with um daisy or is that someone else no not daisy in the she lives in the petrol station with her husband and um gatsby is is daisy who's driving the car oh okay and that kind of and it's gatsby's car so it's like Gatsby who gets accused of it. I think that's what happens to me. I'm probably getting confused. But it's, again, another example of how this car is a symbol of, you know, power and wealth and um, how it mows down this working class woman and the kind of carelessness of the act and the fact that he just drives away. And it's... Yeah, um, yeah. That's really wonderful. Uh, not wonderful, but, like, wonderful yeah, from yeah. right perspective because you, you just have that real moment of tension. Um, and then there's another book that I read um, quite recently called London Belongs to Me by Norman Collins. I think this is the right book I'm thinking of. And there's a character in the book who um, I think he runs over someone or something in the dark. And the consequences of the events like completely obviously change his life and everything and he gets caught. And again, that moment of tension in the car you can see that something's going to happen and the consequences of it and the car is as being this machine and it's like a symbol of of excitement and power to the character like he but he, he loves his car it's something that comes to represent him but it's also the means of his destruction because it's also symbolic of his vanity um and so that's i think I don't think you can get those sort of effects with bikes. I think bikes tend to be used more in novels as a way of a kind of a leisurely thing. You're going off on a nice trip or you're out in the countryside. I mean, the most famous example, well, the most notable example of bikes for me, whenever I think about cycling, I always think of the famous five and then cycling 50 miles. It's always an extraordinary amount of distance each day, isn't it? And then they have an enormous tea at the other end, (laughs) cycle all the way back again. They'll just camp on a nearby butterfly farm or something. There always seem to be lots of butterfly farms in the famous farms. I've never seen a butterfly farm. Yeah, who are willing to, people with butterfly farms who are also willing to give you enormous hampers of like ham and new eggs and fresh bread and for, you know, 10 shillings or whatever. (laughs) And they have these, and what I never understood after reading this, it's like, so you've cycled for 50 miles, which is, (laughs) or whatever. Yeah, well, I think it was. You've had like enormous amount of food and then you're able to just climb back on your bike and go back again. And what children are you? You're like machines. I didn't get it. Immune to stitches. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting what all those, these examples you're giving about cars being this sort of danger and exotic and, um, thing, cause I think there's, there's the flips, there's, there's sort of the two sides of it as being this element of danger, 
Um, and also, on the other side, being this new freedom that people's horizons were opening up much more. I mean, when we talked about trains versus boats, we talked about the trains bringing you know, new people to new communities, but cars were giving you that sort of autonomy, yeah. um, which is in, for example, Love Child is a thing that she Agatha fears, but um, and then things like Toad of Toad Hall. Obviously, can't we yeah. we see a lot about Toad's car, and it's his his idea that this is giving him this exotic freedom, but also you know, just gets him landed in prison. Yeah, um, and I think that yeah, in in particularly in nineteen twenties novels where where it was this dawn of many different things changing, this was part of the breakdown of that very close knit. Community. I remember when we talked about cider with Rosie. Um, he, they go on that trip. I can't remember if it's a bus or a, or a car or what they go on. But there's the one time he's left the village, and it's this whole like, oh my gosh, look at all these other villages we're going through, and all this distance we're going that I've never been before in my life. Yeah. And it does mirror the whole world changing thing that was going on in the twenties. Yeah, and I think you get that sense of freedom and the ability to to be your own um, kind of, I can't think of the word I'm looking for, but to be able to direct yourself and not have to be relying on other people, not have to wait around for public transport or follow a particular timetable. You've got the freedom to go wherever you like, whenever you like, um, with whoever you like, because you've also got that sense of privacy in a car um, where you don't have to, for example, if you took the train and you were going with somebody that maybe you shouldn't have been, you know, you're at risk of being seen, whereas That's in the true, park, yeah, you've yeah. got that, that sense of, you know, being locked away together and it takes on that little bit of a frisson, um, more so than perhaps, I mean, the train journey certainly in the Victorian times would have had a little bit more of that because they, in those days, uh, the carriages weren't walkable through, so you would have to, you'd only be able to enter and exit a, a train at the actual station itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think that's something that's really interesting. But then the idea of freedom also, I mean, with the bike, certainly in new women novels, which yeah, are yeah. novels of the for people who, who aren't familiar with the term, it's, it's books to do with um, the women who are more independent and emancipated at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. So books, for example, like um, Anne Veronica by H.G. Wells, where women on bicycles and uh, are able to move around with freedom they're able to decide for themselves where they can go and when they go and lots of women um depicted in university novels of the time in cambridge and oxford and what have you they're getting around by bike and that sense of them having the freedom of the road and being able to get places at what then i suppose is quite a fast speed um, yes. <laughs> is is wonderful and, and the bike very much came to represent in late Victorian society freedom for women in particular because um you know obviously there were there were no other means of, of getting around and and so that hint of scandal where like we might have to wear trousers to, yes, to, exactly. to cycle all that sort of thing. Exactly. Yes. And I think we take it for granted really actually how even just a bike at the time would have been incredibly fast would have given you so many more options to get around yeah, yeah. if the fastest you had before was a you know a, a horse-drawn carriage or whatever yeah. <laughs> then you know this suddenly oh, obviously there's horse riding but yes this yeah. sort of on the public roads massive difference um the first example i thought of when i was thinking about bikes is i can't remember which of the map and Lucia books it is but there's one of them i think one of the later ones where they start riding bikes and it's this sort of um 
it's this pursuit that's you know as, as all the Mapalunchia books one person picks it up and then it's this very competitive pursuit and everyone must have the, <laughs> the right bike and must you know do it perfectly and all this sort of thing and it's very very funny because they're not very good at it they can't break at first and then and they will feel a bit silly but they must do it because it is the vogue and i think there was it wasn't yeah that's i guess the 30s so a bit later it was no longer this scandal but it was this sort of vogue for cycling amongst the the well-to-do or the or the aspiring um socialites in rural areas it seems i guess maybe yeah. it has moved out of you know the city and the, and the new woman to to the, the the group who must always be in, on board with the latest trend before their neighbours are. I, I, I still haven't read the Matanichia books. I must oh, have you not read any of them? Ah. Yeah. I think this is, yeah, I think this might be the last one or the penultimate one. Um, very funny, as always. <laughs> uh, I also thought of a book which I'm sure that none of our listeners have read, but perhaps I'm wrong, called The Amorous Bicycle by Mary Essex. <laughs> Does that mean anything to anyone? Who knows? Not certainly not to me. <laughs> I really like Mary Essex. Um, she see so she was writing these that book in the forties. She's actually Ursula Bloom was her real name. If that that might mean more to people, she wrote five hundred books um, under various different names. Under the name Mary Essex, she wrote books I really like called "Tea Is So Intoxicating" <laughs> about opening up a, a tea, a sort of cafe garden thing in the in the countryside, and then, yeah, The Amorous Bicycle, which is about this flat of, uh, oh, sorry, f- apartment block, flat block, of um, of different people who have a part share of a bicycle. It's all about the different relationships between the people in this in this um, block of flats connected by the use of the bicycle that, um, yes, causes some amour between some of the residents. <laughs> yeah. He has a title that perhaps hasn't dated as well as it could do, but <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, any more come to mind? No, nothing's, you know, I can't really think of any. I mean, I can think of plenty of cars, but um, I'm struggling with bikes, to be honest with you. I think perhaps bikes aren't as memorable. I guess it is, they, or they might, yeah, they, it's harder to get a plot point out of a bike, isn't it? it? Is. You're less likely to cause a calamitous accident. Yeah, I think, you know, car accidents and, you know, near misses or people buying a new car and it being a status symbol are far more of a a plot device and something that would move a plot forward than than somebody having a bicycle, unless, of course, it's an older novel and it's it's symbolic of, you know, rebellion or something like that. And I think, I mean, I've again only got these two examples that I could think of, I, <laughs> despite, you know, plowing on for this topic for years. But, um, I think there is more of a comedy to the bike, because somebody yeah. trying to learn to ride a bike is just inherently funny, yeah. <laughs> particularly if they And we've are, all done it, that's the We've thing. all been there, yeah. I st- I'm still dreadful on a bike. If you saw me cycling, it would be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't cycled in years. <laughs> no, I think I last cycled when I was 14, so, you know, it's been a, been a while. Um, and of course, the penny farthing is inherently amusing as well. But I can't yeah. think of any novels that appears in. I'm, I'm sure it does. Um, <laughs> whereas, yes, the the car does. I mean, it is funny if someone's learning to drive. I guess, but I can't. I can't think of any. I can think of a few novels where people are quite funny about not being able to start their cars. A. Mill often has characters whose cars won't start, and there's a whole rigmarole about turning the whatever you turn in front start a handle i didn't know but um just stop that <laughs> yeah. so i'm not a not a natural natural mechanic although i have changed a tire in my time well, have you well, more than i've done so I'm impressed. Very, i was very impressed with myself i'm not gonna lie <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Um, but I, yes, I did once have the surreal experience of reading two, two novels, one after the other, both of which ended with a woman deliberately driving a car into a tree to kill herself. Oh. Um, I won't say what they are because in both cases it was a, a twist or sort of surprise ending. But um, it did start. It did seem. A, it was one of those surreal coincidences that I couldn't really tell anyone about because I didn't want to spill the books for oh. them. But oh, yes, you know what? There is an Elizabeth Taylor novel, actually, where there is a twist at the end and someone dies in a car crash, but I won't say which. Oh, yes, and that's neither of the ones I was thinking about. Yeah. So, I mean, it is a very good way to finish a book, isn't it? It's very, it very is. final. It's, it's particularly if the car's been there throughout, it's that lurking sense of... Because it is always a lurking sense of danger... Mm. as opposed to you don't tend to get a lurking sense of freedom <laughs> that you're, no. the freedom is there at the beginning perhaps they might travel off somewhere but it's not yeah you don't have a car in the garage you think oh gosh <laughs> they might drive off at the end <laughs> but, um whereas if a bicycle's lying around i don't think you've got a lurking sense of anything really <laughs> <Yes. laughs> it's fair to say although i do quite like the idea of you know people cycling around with a little basket on the front to go and get their loaves of bread or something well, I mean, yes, there is that lovely sort of holiday feeling about a bike, isn't there? And, you know, going off for the day and, you know, seeing where the road takes you and having a basket full of provisions. And it, it also reminds me of, you know, it's kind of a misread sort of village life kind of. Yeah, I think of like like rice to Candleford or something. Yeah, that's sort of someone thing. singing their bell in the early morning, like the Hovis advert or something like that. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So essentially what we've come down is that cars will definitely kill you, but <laughs> bicycles will give you some sort of access to halcyon Id- idyll. <laughs> Correct us if we've missed any examples. <laughs> I, w- I would like to know if there's any dangerous bicycle accidents in it. In the no, book must that we've be overlooked. somewhere, mustn't there? Perhaps in a more modern novel where people have got faster bikes. Yes, well, that's fair, yes. <laughs> I mean, some people in London certainly, you know, these yeah. bikes can be lethal. Because we have only really looked at older books where people were first starting to use cars or bikes, but mm. I don't know what I, can't, I don't know if they play any particularly significant role in more recent novels. I feel um, like they're a bit more of the background of life now. Yeah, they? I think it is more interesting when they are making a difference. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm sure most modern books have someone getting in a car at some point, but but yes. yes. Was Thelma and Louise a book? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Very iconic car there. Yes. So, cars versus bikes, Rachel. What are you well, I choose? think for me it's going to be cars because I feel like they have more of a um, a role, a more pivotal role in the plot in books that I can think of off the top of my head at this moment. <laughs> yes, I'm going to agree. I think there's more more scope, more yeah. more they might um, structure all around. Yes. There you go. That wasn't too bad, was it? No. <laughs> she says. See, look, look, we always manage to find something to say. That's what I never ceases to amaze me. I know. <laughs> no matter how unprepared I am, something appears from the recesses of my mind. And we always manage to miss out something that we should obviously have mentioned. Yeah. So I'm sure we have this time as well. Yeah. Do, do let us know. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably a book called The Car and the Bike or something yeah. that we've, <laughs> we've overlooked. There you go, cars. Right. And in the second half of this episode, we're going to talk about. Hans and Rebels by Jessica Mitford and Tory Heaven by Marco Nutelaski. Um, shall we do as we did before? And you want to give us a quick intro to um, Tory Heaven? Yes, uh, hopefully I'll be able to remember the details. Um, so the, Tory Heaven is a satire, basically. It's very funny. Um, the book starts with a group of characters who have, in the course of escaping Singapore in during World War 
two found themselves abandoned for five years on a on a desert island. And while they're there, there is a an election in England, and they hear on the wireless that a Labour government has been elected, and it's you know absolute disaster for James. He's the main character. He's a very upper class, he's a bit snobby, um, and he is dreading. They finally get rescued, and he's dreading going back to England to this Labour government, and he kind of makes a wish on the boat back that things could go back to how they used to be. And then when they actually dock in England, it's all very strange because everyone gets separated into A's, B's, C's, D's and E's. And James finds himself uh, an A and um, basically gets given a life of leisure and um, money and everything else. And he realises that, um, well, the, the wish that he's made um, is that nobody liked the socialist government. So they decided to go back to um, a rigid kind of class system where everyone is put in their place and there's no movement between the classes and the upper classes get everything and the, and the lower classes get uh, nothing, basically. Um, and James realised this is a great state of affairs for him. He's got everything he ever wanted. He's got respect. He's got money. Um, but obviously it's not great for everybody, such as uh, some of the other inhabitants of the island who've been classed as E's, uh, which is the worst class possible, um, and they're living in a hovel. Um, and it's, a very funny novel about the most extreme, a very extreme form of, of Tory um, attitudes, but in a kind of frighteningly realistic way. Yes, and in case any listeners outside the country aren't aware, Tories are the Conservative Party. Oh, they yes, still, still call that, and they're the, the right-wing party, not far right, but, you know, no. right, right of centre and all that. Yeah. And indeed, our current Prime Minister, Theresa May, is a Conservative slash Tory. Yes. Um, and Hons and Rebels is spelt H-O-N-S in the title, It's but it is not Hons, despite the fact that the Mitford sisters were the Honourable Mitford sisters. Hons came, came from a similarity to the word hens, as we will find out uh, <laughs> indeed in this book and in other things about the Mitfords. It's a memoir by Jessica Mitford, who is one of the seven Mitford siblings and six Mitford sisters uh, who were well, real life um socialites and and peers daughters in the early 20th century and then went on to many and various careers including Diana um, who married Oswald Mosey uh, Nancy who became a novelist Unity who became a Nazi <laughs> Pamela who became a poultry expert Deborah who became the Duchess of Devonshire and Jessica who became a communist so there you go. <laughs> and poor Tom who died at war very sad. Yes, poor, insignificant Tom. And this this book starts off in looking at their well, the childhood of of the uh, Mitford sisters who were children. When Jessica was, she's one of the younger ones. So, so so Diana and Nancy had left home by the time she was writing about this, or by the, by the period she's writing about. Uh, but then comes the Spanish Civil War. She and her future husband whose name I forgot last time and I've forgotten again. Esmond. Esmond. Esmond, thank you. I always think it's Ernest and it's not. Esmond, um, go off to to the Spanish Civil War. After that, she goes off to America. And a lot of the book is about her experience of both those things. Um, and in many ways, a portrait of her husband, Esmond, who dies very young. Yeah. There you go. Um, when did you first read these books, Rachel? So, uh, fairly recently, actually, um, Tori Heaven only came out, I think it was the last tranche of new books, wasn't it, from Persephone? It was, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and Ons and Rebels, I finally got around to reading um, a couple of months ago. I've had it on my shelf for a long time, so I'm quite, I'm very interested in the Mitford Sisters. Um, 
obviously don't agree with most of their politics, but I find them fascinating to read about just because, I mean, it's hard to believe that such a family really did exist. Absolutely. Sort of the Kardashians of their day in some ways, but but more so. (laughs) Yeah, and I, you know, something I love, and I, you know, say this quite frequently whenever we talk about Marguerite Tulaski, is, is I love how every book of hers you read is so completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, I, mean, I mean, you did mention last time that she has also written another satirical political book called Love on the Supertax, but it's not as um, overtly political as Tory Heaven, certainly. Um, and for me, it was really surprising, actually, how humorous I found it, um, but also how interesting it was in that she was very subtle and... At looking at kind of everybody's different perspectives and at the upsides and downsides of being um, actually of, of being upper class um, because even though James is having the absolute life of Riley with his salary for doing absolutely nothing and being waited on by servants and being a, being treated like a god wherever he goes it's interesting because we also see his parents who don't enjoy being upper class because they don't enjoy the responsibilities that come with it and they don't enjoy the fact that they can't socialise with their former friends who and neighbours who have been classified as middle class bees and so they're no longer allowed to um, socialise with them or even live in the same area. And that kind of perspective of, of saying, you know, it's a lot of pressure having to be at the top of society. It's a lot of pressure having to set the tone of having to do charity work, of having to, you know, um, be the person that everybody looks up to and, and to to not have the freedom to mix with, with people who are different than you. It's actually no fun. Um, and I thought it was quite good in that she... She doesn't just do a straight up thing of oh, all upper class people are terrible and bigoted mm-hmm. and everything else, but she shows actually there are upper class people who who are quite liberal and who do have different views and different friendships and and don't, wouldn't actually enjoy this kind of lifestyle. Yeah, I agree. I think because um, in, in some ways it is quite broad in in that it is this. Um, this strange, unrealistic world. That, I mean, it's not that unrealistic. But it's not the world that she sees around her in terms of this classification, that sort of thing. The, the attitudes that she's writing about, she probably did see around her. We still see in some people to this day. But, um, but yes, the way that she's given it this this t- dystopian twist, I guess, um, in some ways f- feels a lot more broad than, say, the village that we've talked about in another mm. episode where it starts off with that wonderful scene where the um, upper middle class woman and the and the working class women know that they're no longer going to spend these evenings together anymore where they've been fire watching whatever they've been doing. I can't remember, but, um, get this sort of unspoken recognition that life is going to go back to the, um, stratification that it had before. And then of course, in fact, it's not going to go back to that because it's all, all sorts of reasons why it's disturbed and can't quite go back to the way it was. But taking that sort of same scenario and it's, it's maybe less of a character, piece less looking at individual characters it's more about looking at how the whole of society was shaken up and how people were trying to either claim this new world or or get back to the previous one and i think because it was written in published in 1948 Mm. um really soon after the war and i i mean we can't really appreciate now i guess what it must have felt like to have Winston Churchill as, as the Prime Minister throughout the war, this this Tory who is you know very much respected throughout much of the war, um, goes up and down. <laughs> That's one of the things I found really interesting about Molly Panterdown's London War Notes. You see the, the times of the war, Winston Churchill was completely out of favour. 
But to go from that, to, you know, victory of sorts, you know, no one quite wins a war, do they? But yes, no. uh, to this shock election where the Tories are out, at least for a while. Must, yeah, it must have had a seismic effect upon the nation. So writing this in the midst of that must have been... It must, I, don't, I don't know what the reception was like when it was published, but really interesting. Yeah, I think it is interesting to think about how certainly people... I mean, I'm sure people who were upper class wouldn't have read a book like this anyway, but Maybe, thinking yes. about... I wonder how it would have felt to read this and to recognise yourself in some of these characters and, and whether it would outrage you or whether you would it would actually make you question because it is seen to be the upper class way of life is is seen to be very outdated that old-fashioned victorian really um you know of that life of idleness and leisure and it's it's actually that she's like i said she's she's quite interesting in that she shows it to be a gilded cage very much yeah and yeah. not really a life that anyone should want in this day and age because what how wonderful is it nowadays that you know, people have the choice to be with who they want, to do whatever job they like, to live where they like. Why would you want to shackle yourself to a dilapidated country house and to having to do particular events for the local community and, you know, having to always be upstanding and not able to mix with people? And, and you know, why would you want that life? It's so incredibly old fashioned. Um And speaking of dilapidated country houses, that's where we start in in Nuns and Rebels, yeah. which... When I originally read it, I did think it was just going to be a childhood memoir. Yes, but, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and I was familiar with that world from The Pursuit of Love by Nancy Mitford, which mm. I guess a slightly earlier iteration of Mitford Sisters, but because um, she was writing about her own childhood in a thinly, thinly fictionalized way. But yeah, you didn't, we didn't get that much of of Swinburne and their and their you know life in the manor, but it's it's written with this sort of resentment about her privilege and about the well particularly about the politics of people around her and the mm. politics of her family and her parents um that there and i think there is that keynote of resentment throughout the book where it's or just it was written in 19 it was published in 1960 so a long time after the or several decades after the event she's talking about for the most part but it's that sense throughout of i was right all along these people's views remain despicable to me and yeah yeah it's it's unusual to read a childhood memoir that it has that sort of... It's not a misery memoir by any means, but um, it does have a note of bitterness, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, that's... I mean, we talked about this on Sunday, but I mean, I just found it... I find her incredibly annoying yeah. um, <laughs> because she's completely unaware of her own privilege. And something that frustrated me the whole way through the book is that, you know, she's very much like, I'm a socialist and I'm amazing. Um, you know, all of my family are totally, you know, upper class idiots. They don't understand how we, we people live. Um, you know, they're so selfish. And the reality is, you know, she thinks that she's a socialist, but she's living off rich relatives. She's, steady, you know, she, they have no qualms about taking other people's food, living in places for free and not paying any rent, that kind of stuff. They live off other people's wealth, um, but because they aren't personally contributing to um, that kind of way of life by participating in actively, they think that they're amazing and they're the ones who are, you know, living in a way, but they're, they're living things that they're, they're living out their beliefs and they're doing everything the right way. But it's like, well, the only way that you're able to live out your beliefs is by living off other people because you don't actually earn any money. 
Um, and the reality is if none of us earned any money, then what would we do? <laughs> and they don't, that's never addressed. It's sort of like she's, you know, she wants to be in the good echelon of Marguerite Lasky's you know, yeah. things, but she's not, she hasn't thought that much about where she actually is and where other people are. And, you know, she's not joining the working classes. She might, and I don't think you have to be a member of the working classes in order to speak about social equality, but you do have to recognize your own privilege and exactly and there's there's never any sense in the book that she recognizes that whatsoever and every job that her husband gets to help put a roof over their heads is to do with the connection of a rich relative and again it's like this isn't socialism guys this is exactly (laughs) what you're apparently fighting against this is inherited privilege and social connections and the fact that you know you can call a family member any time that you get yourselves into trouble and they will send you money or they will find you a job. And that is the, that's your reality. And that's not something that the people that you claim to be fighting for can ever experience. And I found it incredibly frustrating that she would say horrible things about her sisters and her parents and say that, you know, they were out of touch and that they were horrible people who, um, you know, were contributing to the downfall of society, etc. And she wouldn't speak to them again. And, you know, this ridiculous thing of the minute anyone disagrees with her or her politics, mm-hmm. so she's never going to speak to them again, not on speakers with each other. Not on speakers, yes. <laughs> years and years. And yet, you know, she's completely unaware of the irony of her own position, which I just thought, I cannot believe you're so blind to this. And that is something I found very... Sad when I was reading the letters of six sisters that Charlotte Mosley edited, um, that came out in 2008, I guess, uh, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful book. But yes, the, the, the way that she would stop writing to people if they disagreed with her. And, and we're not just talking about the Nazi here. We're talking, yeah, it's anyone, like even Nancy who wasn't, who was right wing but wasn't fascist, as far as I can tell. Um, you know, she would she would often be on, not on speakers with her for some reason or other. And I think um, I think there's a much more interesting portrait of siblings, or albeit fictional, <laughs> in in Tori Evan. Not more interesting, but more equitable, I guess. Um, where they have different views, but um, I think there's an interesting exploration of what the, the narrator, no, he's not the narrator, the main character of Tori Evans. View, brother and sister, uh, how they respond to these things. One of them wants to marry someone outside of her class and wants to get away. The other one is thinking, actually, this works out rather well for me. And and our guy is in the middle trying to work out <laughs> how they've taken it in their stride so quickly of Hartley, um, or at least taken the scenario in their stride, even if they're battling against it. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the mo- most interesting things is his confusion because he's come back from this desert island because yeah. you know people are forever being stranded on desert island in in Stephanie books like Mrs. Ranskill comes home as well, <laughs> um, and there's this confusion. But then people who've lived under it, and even people who've lived under it for a few weeks after they get back, it's suddenly the norm, and suddenly yeah. they and they might not like the norm, but or even if they don't accept, or even if they don't want to go along with it, they accept that yeah. it is what they have to battle against. And I guess that, I don't know if this is an overreach, but I think people do accept the political situation they're in as being, inverted commas, normal, even if they are railing against it. Yeah. And also I feel like sometimes there's just an acceptance, well, we can't change it, so we just have to get on with it. I think that's quite a British attitude. Just more. Well, that, yeah, it can be, can't it? Um, or, you know, 
it, there's a minority who are very actively fighting against it and the rest of us sign petitions. But, yeah, I don't know. I'm very good at signing online petitions. Yeah, <laughs> we should be better. Yeah. But I should also say both these books are very funny. <laughs> even oh, yeah. even Odds and Rebels with its with its bitterness in there, there are, it's very funny as well. It's, which is you know an odd combination, but yeah. but um, it is very funny. And I think Tory Heaven in particular is is hilarious at sending up people and their attitudes. Um, and you know Odds and Rebels is also. I mean Jessica Mitvidev was a very good writer, and she does pen very funny portraits yeah, of people but she is better able to really pick out people's most absurd characteristics and send them up in a brilliant way um but for someone who has such a great sense of humor she doesn't seem to have a great sense of humor about uh other people being uh, she for someone who thinks that she's a liberal she's really not <laughs> have you read the american way of death no i haven't i haven't either but i would like to which she wrote about for those who don't know funeral, about, about the funeral industry yeah. uh which Apparently, is what she's most known for in a, yeah. in America, or at least it was at the time. Um, yeah, I would like to read that. It'd be interesting to see what sort of style she has when she's writing about, I guess, sort of a, a crusade of sorts. I guess in a very, I think, a very necessary one at the time. The way that the funeral industry was abusing people's grief for profit, essentially. Interesting. And of course, there is a sequel to this called A Fine Odd Conflict. But I can't think. Yes, I don't know who, who pops up in that, but no. um, yes, it's on my shelves waiting. Of course. I'll, I'll get there one day. Um, it is not going to be a surprise to you, Rachel, since you already know that of the two, <laughs> I would choose Tory Heaven. <laughs> As would I, mostly because I find Jessica Mitford insufferable. <laughs> and as as you said, we are very impressed by Margaret Nijelaski being able to write a completely different book every time. Yeah. Marketable um, talent. Yeah, and thanks for for bringing them back into print. Absolutely. Um, great. And in the next episode, we'll be turning to short stories by Elizabeths. Yes. Um, a collection called The Devastating Boys by Elizabeth Taylor, and a collection that is in the English edition by called The Demon Lover by Elizabeth Bowen. And what is it in the American edition? The American edition is called Ivy Grip the Steps. Ivy Grip the Steps, that's right. So if you ha- yes, if you want to get a copy and read, either of those titles have the same stories in. And The Devastating Boys are all available in the complete Elizabeth Taylor short stories, which is, I think, where both Rachel and I will be reading, yes. <laughs> be reading them. Not something to take on your, in your bag to work. It's no, huge. it's very big. <laughs> um, great. We are very pleased to be back. Um, and we are even more pleased if this episode records. Yes. <laughs> if it doesn't, I'm giving up on the podcast. <laughs> uh, we will hopefully be much more regular than we have been. Thank you for your patience as yes. we have dealt with various, you know, exciting life things. Yeah. But as we said in the in the recording that didn't happen, neither is it ever moving again. Never again. <laughs> We're never going to leave our flats. <laughs> it's going to be here forever, reading and recording. Yeah. Reading and recording. <laughs> Great. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye.